Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as always with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Guys, we are less than two weeks away from the Oscars. I hope you're all picking out your gowns to wear to the well-catered Oscar party you'll be having, thanks to Carla Lally Music joining us last week. Next week, we're going to be doing our final predictions, so uh, get ready for some serious deep dives, and we'll have two episodes to to that, so heads up, you'll have double Little Gold Men's next week. But this week, we're catching up on a few things. We had the BAFTA Awards happened on Sunday, so we'll talk about the results from that. Uh, we'll talk about the shorts categories, which we have all watched doing new work so that you may or may not choose to. And then we'll be joined by Rebecca Keegan, who has a story in the special awards issue that we have out now about the 1998 Oscars, which were 20 years ago, unbelievably. And uh, she talked to James Cameron about kind of the, the details of that night that were maybe harder for us to all see when we were watching them on television. Let's talk about the BAFTAs, which happened on Sunday. It's the British Oscars, essentially, and uh, a lot of prizes went to, guess what, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Was anyone surprised by the fact that it kind of ran the table over there? I was surprised, but at the same time, I was watching with a Brit, a friend of mine who is an entertainment editor at The Guardian, and... I always thought of the BAFTAs as, you know, they're British, so they're very, you know, sophisticated and they get things right. And he was just rolling his eyes the whole time being like, the fucking BAFTAs. So, like, so I think that he kind of set me up for stuff that would kind of annoy me. And indeed, I was annoyed. And lo, I was annoyed. (laughs) But I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the debate around Three Billboards is that the critique of it is really coming from... Americans who are saying you're you're looking at American society, you're playing some narrative games with it, and the stuff you're touching, you're hitting third rails, and you're not p- paying it proper due. Like like this is too uh, raw and real for you to play, you know, to to kind of show off with. If you're in England, or you know, unless you're reading carefully all that criticism, you're watching the movie. I don't know that any of that is impacting you. And what you're probably thinking is. Martin McDonough, our hometown brilliant playwright who has made one incredibly great, also totally misanthropic, you know, perfectly structured play after another, is now a director and look at what a genius he is. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, the, the film is is quite well constructed and quite well done. It just seems to have this like inherent flaw in it that is resulting from uh, Richard. You're the first person who said this, you know, six months ago. It just doesn't seem to understand certain things about American yeah. culture. Yeah. I mean, it was a much smaller controversy because far fewer people saw the movie. But like when Andrea Arnold made American Honey, there was some some American pushback about, you know, about this this you know, British woman coming in and sort of glamorizing American poverty and misunderstanding American poverty. And I think that, that that little, that distinction matters to some people, to some critics. Right. But I don't agree with it about American Honey, but I do with billboards. So I think you're right, Mike, that like maybe that that little pebble in, in, in our shoe is not in the British people's shoe. Yeah, and I think that also helps explain why it did as, as well at the Globes and, and, and right. still is not necessarily going to win the Oscar. It could, but I, I'd be surprised. Well, I've seen a lot of people argue that just because this BAFTA win, I mean, it won Best Film and Best British Film and Acting Prizes and just kind of really ran with it, except for Gamble Toro won Best Director. Um, but I've seen a lot of people being like, ah, it doesn't mean anything, where I really feel like they wouldn't normally do that about the BAFTAs. But so, so do we all agree that like, even though this was a big victory, like it still doesn't have the whole thing sealed up? 
I'm used to, uh, so I'm used to being the only person, th- this is no longer the case. We have like such a big team now, but I'm, uh, since the Baptists are on a Sunday, I usually have been the person to sort of be like, what does this mean for the Oscars? And write about it for our site. And usually whatever I come up with really has no bearing on the Oscars. So like, I think <laughs> in years past, I think in years past, the Baptist hasn't really like, cause usually, y- usually there's an outlier in the acting categories, like some British actor that they decide to honor that we, uh, neglect. This year, however, the people who won the acting prizes, uh, which is Sam Rockwell, Allison Janney, Gary Oldman, and Francis McDormand are all in lockstep with the people that we expect are going to win the Oscars, which to me just cements that there's no spanner in the works of, of that narrative now. You know, it's just like, even the Brits are like, yep, yep, give it all to them. That's it. So... I mean, the only one who I would expect a, a spanner for, which I, we keep talking about, like that Gary Oldman has, you know, various accusations in his past that could come back and get him, and it just keeps not happening. And like, I, I guess, the, you know, at this point, Oscar voting is open, so I guess it won't. So yeah, I think as much as I have skepticism about three billboards as a best picture winner, like the acting prizes seem pretty locked at this point. Yeah, the acting prizes. I, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to go after I don't know I mean a journalist if there's new accusations if there's something that we don't know about Gary Oldman then some journalists could very easily come out with it and that that could impact although we're getting close now to the point where it won't even matter um, when does voting close Oscar voting closes uh, Tuesday the 27th so just uh, you know five days before the Oscars themselves yeah so we're getting to the point where you know there's there's not time for it to impact anyway and people are already voting today um Wednesday uh the 21st. So but also I don't think that there's anyone it seems like all of the negative stuff that I thought was going to happen is not happening whether it's just out of kind of let's let's not recreate the world that Harvey Weinstein created or I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, you were waiting so for the Timothy no Chalamet point. take down start or something like that. Like you were yeah. waiting for true ugliness. Yeah, and it just I mean, I don't think anyone had the appetite to do it this year. Uh, La La Land won best picture last year at the BAFTAs, so there you go. Roger Deakins won the BAFTA for cinematography for Blade Runner, which we don't at once upon a time we expected he was going to win the Oscar. And now that seems less likely, right? There has been a different uh, award scandal since the BAFTAs scandal, quote unquote, which is the, the costume guild awards, uh, which honored shape water over phantom thread in sort of period costume, which, which is mad. That is completely insane, which is crazy, but also makes me wonder if that, it, you know, means something for the shape of water and it's, you know, unstoppableness in Hollywood or something. I mean, is this a kind of time for us to all take our temperature? Like we talked, we've talked about this picture a lot. We've talked about how open it is to do, do the BAFTAs or costume or anything, change any of our opinions on what's going to win. Well, I'm just confused. It, is the, is the monster suit counted as a costume? <laughs> That's what a lot of people on Twitter were saying. They're like, Oh, it's for the suit. I'm like, is that a costume? I guess like, it is. I, guess yeah. so. I think it is. Cause I, I wrote about the visual effects for shape of water. And I think they, they talked about the suit being like part of the costume, uh, mm. but it's also visual effects. It's hard. Yeah. That seems like a cheat to me. I don't know. All those gowns and Phantom Thread. Come on. If Phantom Thread was going to win anything, come on. Um, but yeah, I'll say in general that I think Daniel last week kind of got in my head. And and so I've been thinking like, okay, maybe it will be Dunkirk. I expressed that theory to someone recently and they said I was crazy. So like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Did you tell them to listen to the episode? Daniel already has another movie that he thinks. Oh, really? Win. What? What is he on to now? He's uh, he's writing a piece for VF this week about. I don't think he's saying Darkest Hour will win, but I think he's making the case for it. Oh come on, man! <laughs> I like him so much. Um, I've decided. Like I, I was on um another. I sorry, I cheated on you guys and was on another podcast called Nerd It Here talking about Oscar predictions. And uh, I was reminded of my moonlight fervor last year and how I was rewarded for it. So I've just decided to swing back to my emotional favorite, even though it defies logic in a sort of Daniel Joya way and uh, say Lady Bird. I'm just going to stick with it. Why not? I, you're not well. the only person I've heard make that prediction. Like, and for the same logic that Daniel presented, that it's kind of a movie that everybody likes enough that it'll show up on all those ballots. So it's, I don't know, I feel like anything is a good bet at this point. Uh, well, let me just say one more thing about BAFTA's Best Picture. Just going back, looking at the last two years, last year it was La La Land. The year before that, it was Revenant. And this year it's Three Billboards. And I feel like all three of them... Are, they they kind of occupy the same psychic space in this best picture yeah. conversation. Yeah, those are the movies where you're kind of like, I guess that's gonna win then, you know. And so yeah. maybe maybe the Oscars 
don't function that way anymore because of the membership changes or whatever reason or because I think it's a preferential ballot. ballot. Yeah, I think that like the fact that the BAFTAs are kind of a just a majority and then the preferential ballot really makes it different. So that's that's maybe the best argument I've heard for why we should not not discount this victory, but not assume it means everything. Plus, I mean, though you already alluded to it, Mike, when you're talking about perspective of three billboards, like it should be noted that BAFTAs do tend to, you know, preferentially treat British filmmakers. And so, you know, the fact that Martin McDonough uh, is not American is is a factor in all of this. So... So once again, we have we have made our way through all of the short film nominees, which I make it sound like it's some huge tour. It's really not. It's kind of fun to watch a six-minute movie or a 15-minute movie, and uh, they will all be available on various on-demand platforms on February 27th. They're playing in theaters now, so check your local art house if you want to see them before then. Um, so we've looked at all of them. I think we're just going to go category by category and talk about these films that are uh, a really interesting contrast to all the big nominees. Uh, so let's start with live action, where I, I think I told several of you guys that I had a pretty clear favorite in it, which I don't think is anyone else's favorite. The the one that I liked the best was The 11 O'Clock, which is the comedy starring the two white guys. Um, but Richard, tell me why I am wrong and I should pick a more important movie to like in this in this lineup. <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, 11 O'Clock was, was cute, but I also found some of it grating. I, I told you, Katie, that I, it felt like a David Ives play. I don't know if that will mean anything yeah. to anyone, but it just feels it's like this little, little sketchy gimmick thing, which bothered me. Yeah, I I didn't like it either. Yeah. And I think that there were some that were, I don't know, stronger in a way. But I I think, I don't know, it's weird to say, but I feel like DeKalb Elementary, which is about a sort of school shooting that doesn't actually happen, it's almost a school shooting, was, I think, the most interesting to me. Well, it's definitely the timeliest, especially, I mean, you know, I watched it before the most recent shooting, but, you know, it's it's rarely that's not too I I watched it post. So did I. And so, so the setup is that you've got two women working in uh, the kind of front office of a elementary school, I guess. And this guy comes in and immediately pulls out a gun and he's like, this is real. Yeah. And then one of the women leaves. So it's basically the one woman trying to stay calm in this situation. Which yeah. is, and that's really it. It's 20 minutes, but it goes, I mean, it's it's incredibly gripping yeah. and it flies by. Yeah. And, and Tara Riggs, who plays the school administrator, is really good it's in it. Phenomenally and, yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. I had already known that uh, it was based on a real 911 call, like out of an Atlanta school. But, and if it hadn't been for that, I think I would have been rolling my eyes a little bit at like how, I don't know, aspirational it kind of feels. I don't know if that's so cynical of me. In the way that she diffuses the situation. Yeah, I don't, you know, like all it takes is is kindness and understanding, and and maybe that's because I'm I'm dead inside. That's possible, but um, I was gonna but point it is that like, out. I was gonna suggest, that yeah, possibility. <laughs> but it, but it is it is a stunning thing to watch this week. Absolutely, I, I wanted to go back really quickly to the eleven o'clock one and and just briefly say that Josh Lawson, who stars as the well, one of I won't spoil which one is one of the people, and then um, David Harriman, who stars as the other one. They've they're Australian actors who have worked together. They did a film, The Little Death, which I saw at South by Southwest, which I really liked. So there was there's this like familiarity of like this is something that they do, you know, and so and I saw them kind of do it in The Little Death, and so to me, then it doesn't seem special because like, this is just a thing they do. This is like, it's like watching a Key and Peele sketch, mm, you know, mm-hmm. if you've seen their stuff before. So that that's why it didn't like really stand out for me. For me, and I know Katie didn't really like this one, but for me, the silent child really got me. See, that's the one that makes me feel dead inside. Yeah, it has a really preachy message at the end, but it really I mean, it's a really PSA, essentially. It is. And that it's it's a weird thing about a short because there isn't time to do any real twists and turns, right? In right. in 15 20 minutes. So you basically just get like one straight story. Yeah. But that one, it's so beautifully shot and well acted and the and the woman who it's about a, a deaf child who's being like kind of mistreated by her well, her family doesn't really know how to look after her. They bring in a young teacher who starts teaching her sign language and bafflingly to me, the family is like, "Why are you teaching her sign language?" Yeah. And I, the whole time I was like, this is crazy. How could this ever be true? Then the PSA is like, this happens all the time. Like apparently. 78% yeah. of deaf students aren't given special treatment or anything like that. So yeah. that's something. I mean, I didn't know yeah. that. But no. then it's just a kind of a schmaltzy. It, it's just, it's just. Yeah. There's a really weird moment in that movie, in that short film, where you just get this weird reveal that the mother has maybe had some sort of affair and the daughter is not, you know, is, is <laughs> right. sort of like 
out like and it's like just to villainize this person further it's a, like it's a very strange turn in what's otherwise a very gentle sort of film so i don't know it it, it, it was jarring that that, that one i felt like the, with 10 more minutes which you know a short doesn't really have time for i guess but like with 10 more minutes like that weird soapy twist informs why this child is being left behind in her own family you know like i i get why that could be there but that you're right that they don't do the work to smoothly integrate that into the story so the one that i think i might pick as the winner is my nephew emmett which was a tough watch like many of them it's about emmett till and kind of the um his uncle who he was staying with i i didn't know that emmett till didn't live in the mississippi town where he was killed i thought he he was from Chicago. And it's it's really well acted. Richard, you recognize the actress in it, which I was very impressed by. Jasmine Guy. Jasmine Guy. Yeah. A different a different world. Come on, Katie. I mean, I just I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't tuned in. But that one just feels like relevant and well made in a way that feels like a winner. I mean, I, I these categories are tough, but do you guys think I'm onto something there? Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly topically it's it's it's, you know, it's 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 pretty gripping and important, that kind of thing. But um I think filmmaking wise, again, like Mike was saying, it it just sort of it goes A to B and then that's it because it it doesn't really, I guess have time to do anything else. Um, so you know, I don't I don't know if it if it illuminated anything necessarily. Um, but like of the five, um, there's also all of us the Kenyan film. Um, of of those five, I feel like yeah, Katie, that maybe that one is the one that people will feel the most compelled to vote for if if people watch i mean like we we get skeptical i think we got really skeptical about this last year like will people actually watch the shorts when they're voting on them but like if people watch all of us like i felt that was a really well-made emotional journey that has the message that um a lot of these stories have which is like it's only together that we'll you know make it through this terrible, terrible world or something I like agree. that. You know? I, I found it very, very moving. Yeah. And and felt really more good. like a story with an arc than some of the other yeah. ones. Um, yeah. Just looking at Gold Derby, which I imagine at least some voters probably do <laughs> without watching anything. Uh, DeKalb is, seems to be at the top of, of a lot of them. Uh, no, what impressed and, me about DeKalb... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, and then, and then seemingly second uh, is The Silent Child. Um, and my nephew Emmett and, and all of us are both very low on, on almost everybody's oddly maybe, but there you go. What impressed me about DeKalb that, um, especially compared to the silent child is the way that it was apparently made for like, you know, $10. Like it's clearly it costs more, but it, it seemed like a really good way to use a low budget and a short running time to really make something powerful. Like they, it's just yeah. two actors in a, in a room. I was, I was impressed by that. There is an acting thing that's very similar to what Tom Hanks does at the end of Captain Phillips, where, oh, where yeah. you've got somebody who's like just totally together. Yeah. And yeah. then finally at the end, the release, and that's very, very powerful. I mean, it's a great performance. Yeah. She's really, really good. Is. Um, yeah, the, and, you know, um, Richard mentioned how 11 o'clock felt theatrical. This feels stagey too, right? Like when you've got two people and they're constantly like kind of looking into the wings of like the offstage of like, there's police out there, you can't see them, but they're yeah. there, you know what I mean? Which is like a way to stretch your budget and really just have, for the most part, two people in a room and someone on the phone, you know? Uh, let's move on to the animation then. Um, who wants to talk about Kobe Bryant's tribute to himself, masked as a tribute to basketball? Uh, no, let's move on. <laughs> I don't. Speaking not, of Gold Derby, me. I cannot believe that is number one on basically everybody's really? list. Really? Oh. I think people just want the novelty of like Oscar winner Kobe Bryant. Yeah, they haven't watched it. It's not possible. No, the animation's kind of beautiful, but like the the, the thing itself is like, what is It is this? insane because Sorry. the animation is, what is his name? Glenn Keane is his name, right? He's like yes. an old school Disney animator, like big deal guy. And then the score is by John Williams. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's Kobe Bryant's love letter to himself um, animated for about five minutes. It's really... It's very beautifully know. animated. I can't it argue is. with that. It's very well animated. That's all I can say. Okay, so let's let's talk about the one that is well animated and uh, also kind of terrifying, Garden Party, which I watched with my toddler who loved the frogs and totally missed the horrifying twist at the end of it. <laughs> well, yeah. Kitty, will you will you share the fighting in the war room theory about like what this short is actually about? Oh, well, I mean, Mike, I'm sure you noticed this that the uh, the human involved in Garden Party looks a whole lot like Donald Trump. Oh, I was thinking Harvey Weinstein or Brett Ratner, but uh, I, mi- I missed that entirely. <laughs> whatever, oh. just pick, pick from your our, uh, from sleazy our white men, fat guy. whatever bloated corpse you want to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No, that one really blew me away for the animation. Like, it was really... The animation is hyper-realistic. Unbelievably Um, good. It's crazy what they can do. Kind of also scary what they can do. But I was watching it, and I just, like, I don't like frogs. I didn't like frogs (laughs) eating food. I was just so grossed out the whole time. And then when I realized what was happening, I was like, oh, God, we're going to get some kind of thing. And then, sure enough, there's horrible dead human body at the end. Uh, I I just like, like, why the hell? Who made this? But, like, but it is funny that as a joke, because it's like, oh, this is going to be a soothing, cute thing about, you know, beautifully animated thing about nature and then you're like oh wait no it's not i think it's a funny little haha kind of on the filmmakers well and it's a it's a film noir reference kind of thing you know and it has that old hollywood look this house it looks yeah it looks like the house from sunset boulevard or or or, um robert evans's house and the kid stays in the picture i mean it could have been robert evans frankly I actually talked to the Pixar people who made Lou at South by Southwest last year. And I, I don't know that Lou is going to turn any heads the way that like Piper did last year, but there is a lot of crazy technology <laughs> involved in Lou, but like it's just one of those things where you can't tell if you're watching it. You're just like, Oh, this is a fun little story about the lost and found. But, uh, like what technology? I was, it's called like particle technology and it's about the way in which you make something that's not based on an actual thing. So when you have something like uh, this nebulous cluster of junk that makes up the lost and the, the, you know, Lou. the humanized, humanized lost and found pile, um, they use like algorithms to, to make all that junk go together. And so, you know, that's something that doesn't occur to me watching it, but of course is true. And, um, it, you know, and, but it's just not something that you would notice if you were watching it, right. you know. Cool. I liked Lou. I, I was kind of astonished that they'd completely ripped off the Ratatouille shot of the uh, the critic flashing back to his childhood, just com- like totally whole cloth. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if the rule that Pixar movies always win is the case, but I, f- I would be fine with this one winning. I, I didn't like Lou. I don't, I don't like this monster who lives in a, is made up of clothes and oh basketball. Oh my God, I love this. I, I don't like, like I was, frogs. I, was tech- I don't like this clothes monster. No, no it was creepy. <laughs> I would be terrified if that was a kid. And then he killed... He's, dead at the end like he's gone <laughs> i just found that i no, found Lou that- is always with us Lou is the friends we made along the way <laughs> he's dead at the end i mean it's like the it's like the giving well, richard truth. how did you feel about a son bonding with his father through, pack- through packing suitcases oh yeah it was a snooze that's negative <laughs> space i oh, mean I, I like the animation in it the and i beautiful. thought the yeah, poem cool. was actually very kind of yeah. darkly witty when you finally yeah. get to the end and realize it's based on a poem right but it is a little yeah it's a little uh low energy the first minute is just describing how to pack a suitcase which i'm weird and i was like oh, oh. wow i had never thought about <laughs> I know, that. I was like, shoes at the helpful. end oh a bag oh a bag and then the shoes oh okay oh, no. i think this is the best how-to video i've ever seen <laughs> it's like a youtube instructional video just yeah, very I was well animated getting my my like wes anderson ocd thing on with the with the suitcase packing tips yeah sure yeah yeah <laughs> weirdly so, i could see i could see this one winning yeah, um, because the animation's different. It feels like the most challenging animation, even though I know literally nothing about animation. But like looking at it, I'm like, that looks harder than I don't know, putting pixels and algorithms and creating pixels. Yeah, the over stop Pixar. motion definitely is attention grabbing. Yeah, it also feels the most uh, then, like like I feel like a lot of times we'll watch these animated shorts and there'll be some European ones that are kind of strange and dark, and this one felt like the most along those lines of what I'm used to seeing when I watch the shorts. Yeah, I guess so. And like, well, it stands definitely in contrast to the Revolting Rhymes thing, which I quite like, you know, which is based on um, the Roald Dahl stories. And it's actually, they actually made two of them. And I don't know how they picked which one to be nominated, but there's actually like two uh, of these little films that they made. It's got a British voice cast. Like I I know every single actor that they used <laughs> in this film. And so it's like super weird because it just feels too... I guess it feels too mainstream for a short to me. This feels like, I don't know, an episode of a British TV show with a bunch of voice actors who I know. I it was I liked it, but it felt yeah. out of place in the category. I, you know? I, I was just looking back at the past you know, few winners uh, at the Oscars, and the Academy really does go for the cute thing. You know, like, so maybe, maybe, maybe um, negative space isn't going to do it, but like, I don't, I don't want that weird lost and found monster to win. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a good year for Pixar to not win, all things considered. And I think that ultimately the Hollywood, Kobe. even, even if it's their own dead bloated bodies in a, in a uh, <laughs> swimming pool, they still want it to be about themselves. Right. So I think it's going to be the frogs. Okay. I, that's why I think it'll be Kobe because they're like, oh look, oh god, yeah. Hello. Why, why don't I do a documentary about my love letter to my uh, producing <laughs> credits? <laughs> the Warner a love letter to IMDb. 
Well, luckily, there is nothing problematic in Kobe Bryant's past, so that win will go over a trip. Yeah, he's completely clean. Yep, <sighs> yep. Very great. Uh, well, speaking of things that are not problematic, the documentaries, uh, which I think we noted at some point, none of them are about the Holocaust or about war of any kind, which is a real... Yeah. Uh, I would say it's a breath nothing of fresh air, Syria. but they're also kind of a bummer. So not, not really anything cheerful here, I would say. Some uplift. No, but they're like... They're uplifting. Like, okay, so there's there's heroin and knife skills. Um, heroin is about a number of, of women in West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia, I believe, uh, who are like, a, you know, a woman fire chief, a woman judge, and a woman like sort of minister who are working on the streets to battle the like opioid addiction and overdosing um, epidemic in, you know, rural West Virginia. And I found it real, like, you know, it's sad. You see like a bunch of people overdose and die in this film, but it's also just really because these women never seem to lose their optimism that they can work to help mitigate the the loss that's going on there. And then similarly, Knife Skills, which is about uh, a group of convicts, uh, like a, a former a former convict who, or ex-con, yeah, an ex-con who starts this project in, it was Cleveland, uh, a restaurant where he hires, uh, you know, he does like a cooking school and opening the restaurant where he gets, I think it was like 80 ex-cons or something like that. And he teaches them how to cook like fine French food and be waiters and be hosts. And then some of them spin out of the program because like it's, it's, um, you know, their, their past comes back to their old tendencies come back to them. But like, it's ultimately like a really positive, like, this is what one ex-con is doing for all these other ex-cons coming up behind him. And it's not condescending. It's just like, I think I, I found both of those films very I-, I thought that Knife Skills was poorly made. The story is, I mean, it's interesting, but I didn't think it told a story, really. I thought it was just kind of scattered. Whereas I thought Heroin, which is gonna, which is Netflix, um, I thought Heroin was great. Yeah, I really liked that one. It was it was it was structured well. Um, I think that the three women at the center of it were really fascinating to watch. And if it wins and gets attention, there is a built-in role for Jodie Foster in that movie. Uh, or <laughs> the, the, the the woman, the fire, the chief. fire chief is Jodie <laughs> yeah. Foster. I love yeah. the fire chief. Although my favorite is the woman who hands the brown bag lunches out to uh, yeah. to prostitutes. See, I love the judge. She says, people don't like these women out here, but they wouldn't be here if the guys weren't out here, you know, and they keep arresting the women and they don't arrest the guys. She goes, if they can't find any women to go do stings, I know a few who volunteer. It's so, I mean, she's like, yeah. I was in awe of the drug court judge who has this kind of motherly presence, kind of welcoming them all and really encouraging them. But then also when it's time to send them back to jail, like she sends them back to jail. Like that is a really, she's a good cop and bad cop. And then she has the graduation at the end where she's like, you know, giving prizes to the people who made it to the program. And she just, I, I will vote her for president. Judges are among the scariest, like, I don't care people I've ever witnessed in my entire life. They're so terrifying. And she is like, she is, she's authoritative without like losing her humanity or like treating the people that she's talking to as inhuman. I, yeah, I really, I love when she's like, all three of those you women. did a great yeah. thing by being honest. Thank you. And I'm going to reward you now. You're going to jail. <laughs> like, Whoa. Okay. Law's the law, man. <laughs> There's another one that I that I really liked that Katie I think you described as a challenging sit for you, but it's Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405, which is about this um, really stunning artist who um, has you know some mental illness and also some some brain damage, having gone through electroshock therapy, and she narrates almost the entire thing, and so you're listening to this story in her sort of broken way of talking, um, and I don't mean broken as judgmental, it's just sort of like you know fractured, and she's trying to articulate herself the best she can and the way she really articulates herself though is through her art and I just thought that that was a really stunning way to show like the mind of the artist or the ways in which art can speak for you when you are not capable really of speaking eloquently for yourself I really really liked it the name of the artist is Mindy Alper she's based in Los Angeles um, does a lot of like paper mache and and line drawings and stuff Um, and yeah I agree with you Joanna I think that if people can get through it it's really rewarding, but like it's tough, you know, because she has some, some speech problems because of electric shock therapy, and it's just no, it's a pretty dark subject matter. Um, but I think as you know, we're talking about creative people voting on a, you know, um, it is a testament to sort of arts 
power and maybe that will hook in with some people but it's also one of the longer ones which i know for me is sort of a deterrent i think they're all like 40 minutes basically yeah Yeah, are they i thought there was one or two that were like 20 but yeah anyway um i think that that one is interesting and 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 worth watching if whenever it's available and then uh, there's Edith and Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the last yeah. one that we haven't talked about yeah. is on uh, it's on HBO Go right now, and like heroin on Netflix, they're easy to find. Traffic Stop, which I thought was really interesting because it's a it's about this woman who was pulled over by the cops in Austin. She's black, and it kind of is a, is a narrative that we're all familiar with. This video of the of the traffic stop went viral, uh, but she lived and she wasn't arrested. She didn't go to jail, but she kind of just talks about the impact that this had on her, even though it wasn't like physically devastating. It really took an emotional toll on her, and it kind of shows her as a dancer and as a teacher and then kind of cuts back to this traffic stop where she's being treated like this, you know, villain for having sped in a in the wrong zone. And I thought that one was just really powerful for how simple it is and how compelling she is as kind of a, a voice for police brutality in a way that we don't talk about it as much. And it's interesting because this movie came out, I was watching this movie, like, I really do. There's something... I've already mentioned it. You all agree. There's something like dead inside about me where I get like really skeptical of certain narratives that aren't being challenged. So in this film, we see it, uh, you know, you see the objective like dash cam footage, which is hard to watch, but then it's like all from her perspective and we don't get any of the like, except for this one, like actually really interesting conversation that was uh, captured inside the squad car where she's talking to another police officer about sort of her perspective and his perspective. But like, you don't get a lot of the police perspective of like, this is why this happened or this happens routinely or or whatever. And so then I get like my hackles go up because I'm like, I want to hear the other side of this. And then I Googled it. And the officer who like threw her onto the ground who uh, was only reprimanded because I don't know, they didn't file in time for the deadline of really getting um you know more serious consequences to what this to this incident he was just reprimanded and then this year was suspended for you know using excessive force on someone else so i'm like okay no that dude has a problem you know she's she like gave an interview recently like within the last month where she's like it's actually a huge relief to me that he's no longer on the street and i was like all right no this is like i was i was wrong this is this is this is it. This is the right perspective. Watch this. <laughs> um, this guy sucks. So, um, yeah. well, and I and I skipped the another doc that we had talked about before we started recording. Edith and Eddie, which is another one, uh, Joanna, that you said you felt like you had to research afterwards to uh, see the other perspective from, from uh, other perspective on it. Yeah, um, e- Edith and Eddie tells the story of two um, people in their nineties who got married in their nineties after having like won and split a lottery ticket, and uh, it's about you know they lived they were being taken care of by um, one of Edith's daughters and another daughter of hers who lived in Florida. I forget where they were before. Um, wanted to like take guardianship of her, sell off her house, I guess, and so it's this story of how the court. Uh, you know, intervenes and maybe, you know, and separates these people. And I don't know if I want to talk about the ending of this movie. It's really sad. Don't get uh, old is the message that I got from this movie. You lose any power or autonomy. It's don't let your children move to Florida, I guess is also a, uh, a message in this. Uh, is our favorite of all these heroin for all three of us? I think heroin was my favorite. I think, I think also as a, as a piece of filmmaking, it's the most assured, you know, um, which I appreciated, and maybe that's the Netflix things. Ne- Netflix thing, I don't know, but um, yeah, heroin was definitely my number one. Did Netflix win last year for um, for Doc? Yes, White Helmets. Yeah, yeah, and we we had them as guests on the show. So there you go. All right, so I guess like Netflix is just like you know what this is where we're going to clean. I up. mean, honestly, like <laughs> you think about what the audience was for short documentaries twenty years ago. Like I don't know where or how you would see them unless it was in these you know uh, showcases that play in art houses. And now just the fact that they're on HBO Go and on Netflix. Like you know, we talk about the various issues of Netflix with feature films, but I feel like for shorts, it's just a net good all around. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So now we're joined by Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent and uh, foremost James Cameron trousers expert, as revealed in uh, in the new special awards issue of Vanity Fair, which we uh, talked about recently with uh, Anna Rea, who is the editor of it. And Rebecca, in this issue, you have a, a look back at the 98 Oscars, uh, specifically with some details about James Cameron's uh, pants malfunction. So why was that the, the story that you wanted to tell about the 98 Oscars? Good question. I think that that was a detail that when I interviewed Cameron in November and sort of jogged his memory about that night, 
it was something that stood out in his mind. And it's sort of like how these most important nights in your life, you often remember these silly things that were completely occupying your attention. So his tailor never showed up for his tux. And he trooped off to the Oscars. And his pants didn't fit. And so he won... It walked up to make three speeches that night for editor, director, and picture, and each time he was like hoisting his pants up, thinking about that as he was walking to the stage. If you go back and look at the video, can you see it? I, I'm curious of how visible it was to all of us at home. I think you can see it in the editing one, and it's it's mostly like as he's getting up from his seat, he's kind of just like, you know, pulling up his pants and collecting himself, which is just kind of a funny for the, you know, this incredibly detail oriented controlling guy to be to sort of like not be totally prepared is amusing. The other thing that surprised me about him in your article is that when he's talking about when he said I'm king of the world, which I think we all remember he said, and then he got some backlash for it. And I seem to remember at the time that he was kind of defiant being like, listen, I was quoting my movie. I was excited. But now he seems kind of like ready to or at least recognize that he might have been wrong. Is that is that a change of heart? for him? Is it just coming with age that he's willing to kind of uh, admit some fallibility? I think he's mellowed a little bit. He says he realizes that it may have been kind of arrogant to quote his own movie. You know, the assumption he made is that everybody sitting in the theater, it was the Shrine Auditorium that year, I think that they were at, everybody sitting in the Shrine had seen the movie, knew the line, and would take it as this sort of homage to the DiCaprio scene that he intended it. And now he thinks, okay, maybe that wasn't the smartest move. That wasn't exactly what he meant to communicate. I've never really got the, understood the uh, the pushback against that. Because I, I mean, I get it. It's the feeling. It's not, he's not actually saying like, I'm better than everybody. Or I'm, I'm, you know, he's saying like, I feel like the king of the world. Maybe he should have just added that little clause before then. But I, I always feel like he kind of got, you know, unfairly maligned for that. Well, I mean, it had to be just jealousy, right? In general, like he <laughs> yeah. won everything and he had all the money. And after after probably annoying everybody enormously, and they were the all rooting that, for him to uh, fail. He was the king of that auditorium, certainly. <laughs> yeah. that night, so, yeah. I feel like Jennifer Lawrence got less backlash for saying, I beat Meryl or whatever. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think it sort of comes with the totality of Cameron's image and career to that point. I mean, one of the things he had done leading up to that Oscars, which was probably ill-advised, was write a very angry letter to the LA Times calling for the firing of its chief film critic, Kenny Turan, because Kenny was a sort of notorious hater of Titanic. And so I and Cameron faxed that letter into the newsroom, by the way, faxing, yay. But, you know, these are the sort of things that may have made people a little bit inclined not to give him the benefit of the doubt when, I mean, I agree with you, Richard, it seemed just like a moment of exuberance and, and enthusiasm that was entirely understandable. But for whatever reason, it rubbed the people in the Shrine Auditorium the wrong way and some people watching at home, I guess. Well, Rebecca, you've been doing some reporting recently this year on Dunkirk and kind of its uh, efforts at you know winning the Best Picture nomination it's up for. And it's kind of surprises me with that and also with Titanic that these people with these mega hits who are like, you know, on, t- on top of the world, Christopher Nolan and James Cameron, they still really want that Oscar. And that seemed really clear to me in your piece about Cameron, too, that like no matter how much success the movie had had, it meant so much to them, which I feel like I can understand it. And at the same time, like, shouldn't the massive global success have been enough for them? Yeah. I mean, never underestimate how much people's egos need to be fed. Although, interestingly, in the case of Christopher Nolan, I feel like it's perhaps more important to Warner Brothers than it is to Chris Nolan personally. I mean, they have been sort of pushing him to do more, to get out there more, and he is reluctant to do that. They're advertising like crazy, TV advertising, print advertising. If you you know, sort of look at the LA Times, huge sections are wrapped in ads for Dunkirk. But Nolan himself has been pretty limited in the extent to which he's gone out and lobbied. I feel like that's a move to pretend that you don't want something that you really desperately want. I mean, fair point. It is a classic move. It is a classic move to be self-deprecating and act like you don't care while secretly at home you're praying and dreaming about it. That's that's a fair point. But also Nolan is the kind of person who doesn't have a cell phone and doesn't have an email and like defies all these I need to be connected or noticed conventions generally, right? Recently, I went to his offices at Syncope on the Warner Brothers lot and spoke to 
his wife, who is also his lead producer. And I must say, they really do an excellent impression of normal people, much better than most people in Hollywood. I mean, just their sort of lack of interest in attending any major Hollywood functions, their desire to just sort of hang out with their kids when they're not making movies and and sort of lead normal lives. If it's all an act, it's a really, really good one. I like that you've been in Hollywood long enough to not say that they seem like normal people, but they do an impression of normal people. Like, yes. you know better than to assume it. Yeah. I mean, if if they're acting, they're darn good, is all I'm saying. So looking looking back in 1997, in, in the piece that you wrote, I think John Landau, the producer, was saying how they felt like LA Confidential was getting more applause in the room, and they were kind of nervous up until the very end. And in my memory of this, which is, you know, I was in uh, high school at the time, was that Titanic was just a sure thing because it was such a hit. But it, I mean, did you get the sense looking back that, you know, history wasn't as foretold as maybe it seems now? Yeah, I mean, one thing to remember about Titanic is in the lead up to its release, people were mocking it in town. There was, I mean, the headline, the Time Magazine piece, I think it was Time Magazine that Kim Masters wrote, the headline was glug, glug, glug about all the problems on the set, it being over budget, it being delayed. Variety had a Titanic watch to keep people up on just the disastrous production. So... When it finally came out and it and it did so well, this was after a good like eighteen months of the entire industry mocking it, rolling their eyes about it, and secretly hoping for it to fail. So it really, I mean, nowadays award season is this sort of um, kind of constant an event every night. Uh, uh, lots of bloggers and 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 podcasters and places like this following the race. It, that was so much less so. It was much quieter in 1997, 1998. So really, the movie comes out, it becomes a hit, but I don't think that people had a sense of just how much it had won over the industry until the Oscars. Do you think that it would win today, like in the given the way that the atmosphere has changed, that some kind of, you know, reviled movie that became a kind of cheesy hit would be able to prevail? I, I do think it would win today. I mean, I think it, you know, what it what it had was it was this very old fashioned style movie, old fashioned way of making a movie. It was a movie that employed a ton of people, which is not to be underestimated when you think that the Academy is really all people who need to hustle for a job every three months. So here was this big movie that employed people in a very old fashioned way, making the kind of movies that Hollywood is very proud of, wishes it still got to make. Um, I think Titanic would do terrific if it were released this year, at least as far as the Academy is concerned. And not that, it's, you're, I don't think that cheesy is wrong, but it's a little bit, it might not be exactly the right nuance. Like it was a big, like I was a pretty sort of anti-pop culture person at that time. And I went semi-reluctantly with my you know girlfriend at the time and was absolutely like blown away and loved it at age, whatever it was, 22. Um, it was not, it was like, and, and and it seemed like basically the whole world was just like genuflecting to this thing. It wasn't it wasn't like an embarrassing I, to to some like sort of alternative people. It was like a guilty pleasure, but I think to most people it was just like the movie of the year. Period. Yeah, I was I cut school once to see it my third time. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I was I <laughs> Your was third mid- time exactly. Well, and in those days, I think I saw it twice in the theater too, just because like yeah. you did that yeah. in, back then. Exactly. Okay, then I will play the role that usually young Mike Hogan plays and say I was the person who was. <laughs> Turning up my, I've since come around, but as a teen, I was too cool for Titanic and I was rooting hard for LA Confidential. So, Rebecca, where were you in 1997? What were you pulling for? I, I went to see it with my then boyfriend and his parents, and w- I was utterly transported by the movie. I was completely, totally just swept away by it and blown away by it. And I was at that point a college student, and it was not my job to have any sort of professional opinion about movies or to be cool about movies. And I completely loved it. I think, you know, an interesting thing that happened in the months after its release is that nowadays this movie would probably open huge um, and then maybe kind of peter off a little bit. Titanic did not open huge. It opened okay. And then it just played forever. The biggest weekend of its release was Valentine's Day. And it opened in December. So... People sort of slowly discovered it. There wasn't this kind of 
relentless marketing get out and see it. I will say, however, the Celine Dion song, I think sort of people got really sick of yes. that song probably by the Oscars. That was just playing endlessly. There was that remix with, oh, yeah, the, with the dialogue. That was horrible. Dialogue in it. And it just was felt so ubiquitous in 1998. Rebecca, have you ever heard this rumor that it was is probably just an urban legend, but um, about Celine Dion performing that song and doing her famous chest pound, but forgetting that the heart of the ocean thing was on her chest and it like basically like slamming it into her her sternum have you ever <laughs> no. heard this no that's an amazing story i have heard cameron did tell me that that's that song was written in secret kept a secret from him because he's expressly said he did not want a song in the film so james horner the composer and celine dion wrote that song and recorded it in secret and then just sort of presented it to cameron finished uh, basically so that he could not say no. He was really opposed to any kind of song being in the movie. It doesn't seem like Cameron to leave money on the table like that. Like, <laughs> I guess he learned his lesson. He had a song in Avatar. I don't think he was thinking commercially. I think he was just thinking like, this is an old-fashioned Hollywood epic, and those movies do not have songs. Real movies have orchestral scores, and that's that. I guess to Joanna's point, I'm now looking. Uh, L.A. Confidential and Goodwill Hunting were both definitely like cooler movies at the time. But yes. Titanic was just, it was just like inescapable. It's funny to think of a time when Goodwill Hunting was a cool movie. I know, but it was. <laughs> I, that's, it's worth yeah. pointing out. Oh, yeah. I've been trying to think about like what this year's equivalent of Titanic would be. And I, I guess the closest corollary of the nominees is Dunkirk. But thinking about something that sweeps people away the way we've been talking about and kind of wins over the skeptics, like I feel like it's things like, like Black Panther, like things that aren't getting nominated for Oscars anymore just because of the way that the shape of blockbusters has changed so much. So it, it's, it makes me like, I feel like you're right that Titanic would win today, but I don't know if Titanic would be made today and be taken seriously in the same way that it was. I think you're right. Well, and also a huge component of its financial success was the romance storyline, which we don't really have movies of this scope that put a romance at the center of them. Probably the most romantic movie in this Oscar race is Call Me By Your Name, which is a much, much teenier, tinier movie. So when you think about the the demographic that really pushed this movie hard at the box office was teenage girls who saw it six, seven, eight times as they were so in love with Leonardo DiCaprio and they were so kind of just into the love story. I can't think of an equivalent movie that is made at this scale and this scope that also has a love story at its center. Yeah, it's like we've given that territory over to like Fifty Shades Freed, which is a totally different scope. Does me watching Harry Styles and Dunkirk count as a love story? (laughs) (laughs) I think it does. There is a whole other, yeah, version of Dunkirk with a really cool uh, love story that that sadly Nolan did not shoot. Or maybe he shot and it's, it's just, yeah down the line well joanna if you like if you were to go back now would you still side with la confidential or has titanic won you over in the intervening years i mean katie you're more instrumental than anyone else like breaking down my resistance to titanic to be honest so it's a fairly recent concession um in terms of like i mean i guess it depends what we think best picture should be and if it if it's about enduring impact then titanic deserves its win absolutely i think I mean, this is kind of why I keep wanting to argue for Get Out as a Best Picture winner this year because of the, the cultural impact of something. Like, I I really like it when that lines up with Best Picture, and it has happened so rarely in recent years. And that's when, like, I was fascinated with Titanic as a 14-year-old, like so many people, but I think it has grown for me since then because of its being such a totemic representation of a period of time in a way that Best Picture winners so rarely wind up lining up that way. In addition to not seeing that many blockbuster romances, there's you don't see... They still do blockbuster disaster movies, but not in this kind of prestige way, right? I can't think of a... I mean, uh, Kind of Ness Entertainment was involved with Only the Brave this year, but it didn't catch on that way, and it wasn't it wasn't anything like the sort of epic that James Cameron put together. So I guess that the genre just sort of... But, but was that a genre... Rebecca leading into this was it like oh yeah he's making another Poseidon adventure or was it really very few and far between that somebody would put this kind of resources into a movie like this 
I mean, it was an anomaly even in 1997. It's only more so now, but it was, there were not movies being made like this at that time. And one of the interesting things is, too, it was the very beginning of CG. So um, a lot of the things he's told me that he shot practical, like just the sunset behind Kate and Leo when they're on the front of the ship is a real sunset. He said, well, probably if I were shooting that nowadays, it would be a CG sunset. Well, it probably wouldn't feel as real. It probably wouldn't look as good. A lot of the stunts that are done when the ship sort of breaks in half and goes vertical, those are real stuntmen and stuntwomen, like, you know, banging down the the, the ship and, and in some cases really hurting themselves. Nowadays, for sure, you would do digital stunts. So there are some ways in which the movie feels like it, no one would make it that way now, even if they made it at all. So, Rebecca, I think we have you on for the for the last time before the actual Oscars. So, I know you've been reporting on all of these. Do you have any predictions that you want to share with us or anything that you, uh, you're rooting for for this year's Oscars? I think this is the most wide-open Oscars I've ever covered. And last year at this time, I was probably confidently proclaiming La La Land unbeatable, if not on this podcast, then in other places. So, I'm reluctant to sort of make a prediction. I will say it it does seem like the kind of, if you were going by the numbers and the old school way of predicting, you would pick Shape of Water. If you were going by the sort of emotion in town, you would go with Get Out. That's really interesting. Like it's a, it, it feels like something not just the internet's rooting for. It feels like when people pick a movie that they have a passionate response to, they more often than not are saying get out. So to the extent that we know the preferential ballot really is weighted toward movies that people have a strong, passionate belief in, that to me suggests get out has more than a fighting chance. Well, we'll have you on after the Oscars and hopefully you can take a victory lap for uh, not predicting, but for, uh, and it'll have been Dunkirk. And so, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) nothing that I said will matter. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, joining us and indulging my, um, at this point, years worth of Titanic questions. I'm sure this won't be the end of it, but this is very, it's my favorite thing about you, Katie. And I am not (laughs) kidding. Thanks guys. Thanks Rebecca. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please find us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Help us find more listeners as we make this final push to Oscar night. Uh, Once again, we'll have two episodes next week as we make all of our Oscar predictions. Uh, And in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we're all on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? I'm at Rylaws, and Mike had to run away uh, to a screening of Titanic, but he's Mike (laughs) underscore Hogan. (laughs) And Joanna? I'm Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best review of Little Gold Men goes to Rebecca Keegan. And I must say, they really do an excellent impression of normal people.